3: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
4: Watching the Anglo-Saxon war machine, mechanized mendacity, moving across the terrain of public opinion is an awesome sight. I've seen it before, of course, in the run-up to Iraq. But given that that ended in a million dead people, ISIS and Al-Qaeda cascading around the whole world, no weapons of mass destruction, the whole thing, an unmitigated disaster, I honestly didn't think they would try it quite the same way again. I certainly didn't think that a considerable number of Pavlov's dogs would rally to the same old messages from the same old messengers. But I'm afraid I was wrong. It is a chastening experience. I thought the public had more sense. I thought the broadcasting and media class had more shame. More fool me. Actually, they are utterly shameless. Uh, The journalists and broadcasters have no need to be bribed or twist. Uh, The average British and American journalist will lie on cue and with such conviction uh, that one is waiting for them to take the onion from their pocket, hold it to their nose and begin to cry, like Mados on screen about poor, plucky Nazi Azov battalion in the Ukrainian National Guard, currently firing shells, and mortars, and even heavier artillery bringing up the rear on the line of control between eastern Ukraine and the Ukrainian coup government in Kiev. I suppose all of my protestations have probably been in vain. I told you from the beginning of this crisis that it was a complete lie that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine. But I also told you from the first that Ukraine was probably preparing to invade 30% of its own population who live in the east of the country in the self-proclaimed People's Breakaway Republics. These are ethnically Russian people for whom Russian is the language, a language completely delegitimized on the very night that the parliament building in Kiev was set on fire, the president set scarpering out of the country, and the MPs held at gunpoint until they signed the law which delegitimized the Russian language. Unfortunately for the coup mobsters, There is 30% of the country that simply won't, can't indeed accept that because Russian is their language. They are ethnically Russian and hundreds of thousands of them indeed are dual citizens with Russia. So you had irresistible force meets immovable object. And a desultory but very bloody war continued for several years along that line of control until the Minsk Agreements. The Minsk Agreements, of course, are the property of the Security Council of the United Nations, which adopted them in Toto and unanimously. And therefore, the Minsk Agreements have the power of international law. But a window into the soul of the enemies of peace was given, perhaps unwittingly, by the head of the Moscow Bureau of the Carnegie Foundation. I do hope he's not in Moscow. I do hope the Russian government has begun to move these kind of Trojan horses along. But whether he is in Moscow or not, he's the head of the Moscow Bureau. Ah, he said last night on social media, The game is now clear. Russia seeks to coerce the Ukrainian government into implementing the Minsk agreements. How do you coerce someone into an agreement they've already signed? Of course, they haven't implemented it, but shouldn't everyone be seeking to coerce them to do so? Why is it being left to Russia to coerce them to do so? What about Germany and France, who are co-signatories with the Ukraine government to the Minsk agreement? What about the United Nations Security Council, which has now embraced the Minsk agreements as their own? What do the Minsk agreements do? They call for a ceasefire, along that line of control. They call for the withdrawal of foreign forces from that area. It's going to be difficult now that it's stuffed full of foreign soldiers and mercenaries and Western supplied weapons paid for by you, the taxpayer in America and in Britain. And they call for the granting of autonomous status for the Donbass region, which is currently being heavily attacked by the forces of the Ukrainian military, including their fascist boot boys grouped around the Azov battalion. Now, if I'm right, and if this bombardment becomes a general offensive and all of the troop movements uh, suggest that it is, uh, then, of course, a full-scale attack on the ethnically Russian people next door to Russia is going to bring Russia into the war. And if Russia enters the war, it might as well continue it. I don't speak for Russia. I don't know the Russian mind in this. I can only tell you what I would do. I would say, if you will not push back NATO's tanks from my lawn, I will have to push them back for you. If you continue to encroach farther and farther to the Russian state borders, I'll have to do something about it. It will be military and it will be technical to use the words uh, that the Russians use. I have no idea what that military technical response will be, but I suspect uh, that the West and its satrapies will not like it. This has been a war of choice, not by the West, as you keep hearing, on the state-mandated British Broadcasting Corporation, because... Germany and France are in the West, not by the international community, because Germany and France and Russia and China and India and Iran and the Arab world and the African world and the Asian world are all part of the international community, you arrogant hypocrites. What they mean, what they mean is the Anglosphere, the AUKUS, Australia, UK, US, the Anglosphere, the Five Eyes, that's what they mean by the West, that's what they mean by the international community and it's time the entire world told them, your days of ruling the waves, your days of ordering other people around and invading and occupying them at will, are over. And if you won't accept it, we'll have to prove it to you by force of arms on the battlefield. That's my point of view. It may or may not be Russia's. But who's that I hear? Who's that little fellow in his golden hose coming out of the Elysee Palace It's little Macron! He's been on the blower all day to Putin, and he's got a solution. He wants to broker, by this night, a ceasefire on the line of control between Ukraine and the autonomous republics it agreed to in the Minsk agreements. He wants a summit at what he calls the highest level You'll need to sit on a few cushions if it's at the highest level. But good old Macron, I say, the French people don't want war. The German people don't want war. That's why they didn't send any weapons. Perhaps it was the presence of the swastikas and the death's head insignias and the jackboots and the goose stepping and the swastika flags flying in Kiev that put them off. All they sent were clean helmets with no swastikas on them. And they didn't let Britain send weapons to the Kiev regime either. They forced them to fly around German airspace. If President Macron succeeds, uh, then he deserves the praise of all humanity. I know he's doing it for revenge, on Joe Biden and Boris Johnson, for stabbing him in the back and stealing 100 million euros from France in the aborted French submarine deal with the Australians. You can't steal billions of people's money and expect them to be sanguine about it. No, no. I know he's doing it because he's got a presidential election coming up very soon. I know that. I don't care why he's doing it. He's doing it. Just like Chirac had the courage to stand up against the Anglo-American bullies over the Iraq War. Just like Herr Schroeder, Herr Schultz, has made it clear that Germany wants no part of this. I'll tell you what, Europe... I really, I tell you this with all the power of my being, if you don't stop being led by the nose by Boris Johnson and Joe Biden, your countries will be the ones that will pay the highest price in war and in economic and financial ruin. It's your people that will pay the highest price. It's about time you stood up to the bully boys. Now, Her Majesty the Queen's not well. I'm very sorry to hear it. I wish her even longer life. I'd be voting no in our poll, is it now time, for Her Majesty the Queen to abdicate? A, yes, B, no. I myself don't want Her Majesty the Queen to abdicate, but I demand a referendum when in the fullness of time she passes as all must pass, because I ain't going quietly into the reign of bonkers Charles and Queen Camilla. I promise you that. I will agitate everywhere on every platform that Britain must be given the choice between monarchy and democracy. That's the choice, and we in Britain have to decide when to take it. But having said all that, with the COVID and with a son who just paid £12 million sterling to a woman he's never met, with whom he never danced, with whom he never sweated. As a matter of fact, he was in Pizza Express in Woking at the time in question. A man he didn't put, a woman he didn't put his arm round, a woman he didn't meet in Ghislaine Maxwell's apartment, a woman he was never photographed with, a woman he's never met. He gave her 12 million pounds in a New York City courtroom just this week. I drove past the palace this evening. There's a very long queue of women that Andrew has never met offering to make a settlement with him for less than 12 million pounds. One after the other. Her children have disappointed her. The only one worth the proverbial picture of warm human fluids is Princess Anne. But she was ruled out from the start because she was the wrong gender. Long before the gender wars broke out, Princess Anne was ruled out because she didn't have a dick. Just think about that. So we'll be talking about the war. We'll be talking uh, about the royals. But we can't talk about Andrew without talking about the strange death of Jean-Luc Brunel. Who was Jean-Luc Brunel? He was a pimp for the pimp Ghislaine Maxwell and the pervert and spy Jeffrey Epstein. Jean-Luc was in jail. It was a modern jail. It had all mod cons, including security cameras. But in yet another astounding coincidence, The cameras in Jean-Luc's cell weren't working when he, too, wrapped the paper sheets around his neck and hanged himself until he was dead. And if you believe any of that, I have a bridge here in London I can sell you, going very, very cheap. This is like a second-rate mafia movie where all the chief suspects keep getting bumped off before they can talk in the court and incriminate the rich and powerful for whom these pimps were supplying? How come we know the name of every donor that gave money to the Canadian Freedom Convoy Fund, but we don't know a single name of the people for whom Epstein and Maxwell and Brunel were pimping. How come they're all redacted? Shouldn't we know the name of the rich and powerful people, presidents, prime ministers, members of the royal family, princes of the church, princes of Wall Street, princes of international capitalism? Shouldn't we know their names? In this day and age, or are they going to bump off Ghislaine Maxwell next? Is that their game? Lastly, just as I came on air, I discovered that there's another giant bank leak. This one from Credit Suisse. 80 billion pounds, 80 billion pounds worth of deposits from thieves and criminals everywhere who stole that money from their people and who were allowed to lodge it in a respectable bank called Credit Suisse, some of them even after they were convicted of murder, some of them after they were convicted of people trafficking, some of them when they were wanted by their own country after they had been driven out of power. I haven't had time to digest it fully yet, but I have looked down it far enough to see that the sinister torturer of the Mubarak regime in Egypt, Omar Suleiman, who kidnapped me and the editor of this show, Ron Mackay, in the dead of night, bundled us into an unmarked van, drove us through the desert, had me waking up the British ambassador in the middle of the night to tell him, men without uniforms have kidnapped me and are taking me across the desert. Help! Omar Suleyman, a police officer, a humble police officer in poor Dear Egypt, he had a bank account at Credit Suisse with $300 million in it. A torturer, Omar. That we knew. A torturer and a thief. Oh. I really do hope one day, if not now, then on the judgment day, I get to give evidence against you. I opined in the week that whenever working class people rise up in however incohate a way and seek to seize control of their own destiny, like in the Brexit referendum in 2016, or like on the streets of Ottawa right now, and not just Ottawa, and not just Canada, when blue collar drivers, truckers take to the highways to challenge the power of a neoliberal state, their default position of everyone, especially the liberals and even what calls itself the left, is to brand them all racist or even worse than that. I'm joined by the one and only Kim Iverson, who really is a media star. She's the host of the Kim Iverson Show. She's an independent political analyst of very great note. It's an honour, Kim, to have you here. Uh, can, Can we start on this point that I just made? What is it about the Liberals that they are actually, when you scratch them, or take their black face off the most authoritarian, tyrannical people of them all.
5: Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. First of all, Um, I would say that it's not necessarily right now. I agree that in this time period, it's the liberals that are behaving in this way, but it isn't because they're liberal. It isn't historically liberals. It's really elites and the liberals here in the United States and in Canada and around the world have become the elites in society. For a long time, it was conservatives who were the elites, and they would be the ones who would crack down on protesters or call them names, you know, looking at them, low class, right? It's always the elite that looks at these uprisings from working class people or poor people and they snub their noses at them and say, these are low class people, ignorant people. They don't know anything. We're the moral superior. Uh, We know better. And that is that is more of an elite versus uh, you know, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat sort of scenario going on. And so what has happened over the last couple of decades is that the liberals in society have become the highly educated elites and those who believe that they're in the moral, uh, they're that they're in the moral right, that they hold the keys to morality and, and what is right and wrong. And these other people are just low class.
4: Yes, a basket of deplorables, as uh, Clinton right. famously called them, but um, how do you claim to be on the moral high ground when you, uh, when you, for example, uh, deal with protesters uh, by trampling them under horseback, by freezing their bank accounts, uh, by making their children go hungry, uh, by uh, having them kicked out of their jobs? All of these things have happened in Canada under the supreme liberal, if liberalism had a king, it would be Trudeau. And he's the one doing all of this.
5: Yeah, it's, um, well, they do it under the guise of defeating racism, right? So that has kind of been the moral torch that liberals have been holding on to for a long time, saying, well, we are the ones fighting against racism, racism, racism. And so what we've seen is that anything they don't agree with, they've des- they've decided is racist. So even though these protests have nothing to do with race, at all, mandates have nothing to do with race. These people are not on the streets in Canada protesting, for example, immigration. They're not protesting, uh, you know, whether or not certain people can become citizens or whether or not they should accept refugees into the country. They're not having any sort of conversation or protesting at all about anything to do with race. This has everything to do with vaccine mandates, and that is what the what these people are protesting against. But liberals somehow, some way, connect it to racism, un- unclear how they do it. The woman who was trampled by a horse by the Ottawa police is a Klan leader for the Mohawk, uh, Mohawk tribe. Uh, she's not white, obviously, she's a native, and yet she was trampled by cops. And, and, and so everything is under this guise of, well, we're the moral superiors because we are fighting racism. And now anything and everything we don't agree with is racist or right-wing, and right-wing means racist.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's long been a practice, some decades. It's even uh, uh, before Clinton uh, that uh, people have become used to calling the person one place to the right of them uh, racist and three places to the right of them fascists and then uh, uh, close them down. You're right to make the point uh, that it used to be conservatives that did these things, but the cancel culture uh, is... uh, ineluctably joined to this power of the elites. It's the elites, and I call them liberals, uh, but you're right, they're not doing it because they're liberals, perhaps. They're doing it because they're the elites who seek to cancel everyone who disagrees with them, first by hurling these epithets at them, and if possible, to actually close them down, Now that's true in Canada, it's true in the United States where you are, it's true here in Britain.
5: Well, in Canada, they're really cracking down on these protesters. It's—it's. It's, uh, I, I never thought in my lifetime I would see something like this in a country that declares itself to be a Western democracy. It's the same sort of thing we've seen in Australia during the pandemic, and it's just shocking. But in Canada right now, these police are out there. They're rounding people up. The police chief in Ottawa has said that he's going to hunt down protesters. So even if they leave the protest and they go home, he's saying, I'm going to find out who you are that participated in these protests. We're going to go after you. Uh, I mean, it is just the most dystopian, anti-liberal, anti-democratic scenario that we're seeing right now, all because people want to have a choice on which medicines they take. I mean, it's unbelievable that that is what this is about. This is just about people wanting to choose which medicine to take. And they're calling them racist. They're calling them fascist. They're calling them terrorists. And they're hunting them down, seizing their money, uh, forcing them to lose their jobs, lo- even saying that they're going to confiscate their pets, and then and then relinquish their pets, give their pets up for adoption for someone else, because of because they protested the right to do what they would like to make their medical decisions between them and their doctor. It's unbelievable.
4: It is. uh, As I hear you describe it so eloquently, it is actually unbelievable. Not least because forced medication with redolent of all its fascistic and Nazi past would once have been a cause for the liberals and the left themselves to be out on the street.
5: Yeah. Absolutely. And and I kind of wonder if Donald Trump were in office and he was the one mandating and and still the one saying, we got to get everybody vaccinated in order to get the country back to normal. I do think it would be the other side actually protesting this. I think it would be liberals on the street saying, my body, my choice, like they have for decades. Um, But they're taking up this actually more of a the fascist viewpoint, which is, no, you must take this medicine, you must wear these masks at all time, you or you will lose your job. And they're taking that position almost to own Donald Trump. I mean, they're harming themselves, they're harming their children, they're forcing people into, into these medications that maybe a person does or does not want to take. And they're doing it all just to own Trump. I mean, it's so, der- it is tr- literally Trump derangement syndrome.
4: Yes. And uh, they've definitely got that. So let's turn to that wider perspective, because, of course, you can't be sure. Uh, there are a lot of sheep in the world in human form. Uh, but I can't help thinking Canada has been changed forever by the events, and it will not end well uh, for uh, for Trudeau and his gang, as it didn't end well for uh, Hillary Clinton. But though they've obviously made a comeback in the form of Joe Biden, but that's not going well either. How do you think all these uh, phenomena are going to play out in, say, the next five years in political developments in North America?
5: Yeah, I, th- I think that whats what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a flipping of the parties. So what the conservatives used to always sort of stand for, now liberals tend to be standing for instead. So um, conservatives were all about being, you know, following the law, doing what the government says. uh, And and now liberals are the ones saying, no, you must obey, you know, obey or else. And we're seeing conservatives now being the ones, Republicans or people on the right who are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, this isn't a free society and I want to live in a free society. So we're seeing sort of, I think, more of a political realignment happening. And I think the way that it plays out is that We're going to see more power grabs by the government in order to try to squash this uprising of the proletariat, if you will, you know, this rising up of the working class. And we're going to see the government doing more like we're seeing in Canada with them now making protests illegal. We're seeing more and more of this power grab. And I think people will ultimately—I do think, unfortunately, it will take decades, but I do think people will rise up. and the there will be a, the same sort of thing that's, that's happened to conservatives over the years, over the decades with civil rights movements, for example, I think we're going to see happen, but to liberals instead, they'll be the ones who are holding people back, holding progress back. And it'll be these, the, these uh, populist people who are instead looking for, uh, for progress. So it'll be an interesting shift. Unfortunately, I do think it will be a decades long process.
4: And how will it play out in the media? Now, they're, they're gunning for Tucker Carlson. The, just like Trump, he turns out to, to be an agent of the Kremlin, according to the right. liberals. Uh, they are gunning for Joe. They've uh, gunned for Jimmy Dore. Uh, and yet, and yet, the numbers watching... Your show, Jimmy Dore's show, Joe Rogan's show, my show. The numbers go up and up and up. The more they attack us, what are they going to do about us?
5: They're going to deplatform. I mean, they're going to do everything they possibly can. And people are just going to have to get together. I know Trump is starting his own sort of social media platform empire that he's going to be um, releasing. And I think there's others out there like Rumble. There's others that are doing what they can to sort of combat this um this sort of takeover but i do think that they will continue to push and try to deplatform and silence and smear Just like conservatives did for many, many years against people that lived an alternative lifestyle, that, you know, people weren't allowed to come out of the closet or people weren't allowed to live life uh, the way that they, you know, be in interracial relationships even. Or, you know, back in the day, there was all of this judgment and you would be banned or shunned from society if you thought a certain way or lived a certain way. And I think we're seeing that same sort of thing, but it's flipping and now it's coming from liberals so I think that people will kind of create their own underground in a way, uh, societies, underground, media, underground. But, but nowadays it'll, it' won't be so it won't be exactly like underground newspapers, but similar, right? Where it is sort of alternative, but ends up being very popular and ends up being more mainstream actually than what the mainstream is trying to be. Yeah.
4: I, I, I've lived so long, Kim. I've been witch hunted by both the right. And the left. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, tell the viewers, please, uh, how people can follow your tremendous show.
5: Oh, thank you. Well, I am on YouTube, Rumble. I'm also on Locals and Rockfin. So, if you just Google Kim Iverson Show, just go to kimiversonshow.com. That'll get you to the YouTube channel, and then from there you can get all the links to the other to the other uh, the other sites. So, and I'm also on uh, The Hills Rising every morning as well.
4: You're tremendous, I must say. I hope this is not the last time that we talk. Kim Iverson of the Kim Iverson Show. Thank you for joining us. Is it now time for Her Majesty the Queen to abdicate? These are surprising figures to me. A, yes, 35%. B, no, 65%. But that's on Twitter. On YouTube, it's yes, 58%. No, 42%. And on Telegram, it's yes, 59%, no, 41%. I think the printer has actually overheated uh, the number of social media comments. Blank says, yes, and she should dissolve the monarchy. Given his past behaviour, if Charles wants to be head of state, he should stand for election. And Alan says, the Queen promised never to abdicate at the start of her reign. Well, that promise has been made by royals before. And New York Fog says, That suit looks tailor-made, not a crease. Fits like a glove. Thank you for that, sir. It's actually from Marks and Spencer, and it's just a jacket, not a suit. I've got Levi 501s underneath. Stuart Wheeler says, Her Majesty should be allowed to see out the remainder of a long life of service, be buried with full honours by a grateful nation, and the whole squalid organisation of royalty should then be disbanded forever. Britain would then emerge blinking into the light of the 21st century. Stuart Wheeler, I could not have put that better myself. And Marek says, absolutely not, George. I agree with you on many things, but I don't want the UK to become a republic. Mary Jasper says the Queen will never abdicate. She always viewed with horror the abdication of her uncle who walked away from his duty. Though as things turned out, especially with his Nazi sympathies, thank goodness for us that he did. But for the Queen, it meant her father's early death. And Scouse Alarm, my old pal in Liverpool, whose wedding I'll be attending, it's the wedding of the summer. Uh, the monarchy should end when the Queen passes. Or at the very least, there should be a referendum on becoming a republic. Monarchies, which cost the taxpayer an extraordinary amount of money, shouldn't be a thing in 2022. And TV and film stars says, yes, and William should be king. Gav says, time for the whole royal family to abdicate. Padge says, it pains me to say The abdication isn't required. Her Majesty is looking very frail of late and I worry she won't be around too much longer. She has been magnificent for 70 years as monarch. Her service has been incredible and I'm proud to be a loyal subject. God save the Queen. Firestarter says, yes, let's have a Trump, Putin, Macron, Biden, Johnson, Branson as head of state. God help us. The Queen, God bless her. Of course, that's not the only alternative to having a monarchy. But let's have a referendum on it. Agree with me on that at least. And Reuben says, ready for a republic, but let her see out her time in peace. She has enough problems. Amen, Reuben. I'm with you. And Shahid says, good evening, George. Lovely show. Yes, I think the Queen should retire and rest at her age. She's done more than enough, and we all love and care about her health. And Sir Les says... <laughs> I've got to read the whole name. It's really good. Sir Les Brandon says, Whether the Queen abdicates or not, not, it's time to work out a sensible way to end this national soap opera. And Caroline says, Yes, the Queen is frail, but please not chucking Camilla. <laughs> That's what she says, Camilla... I didn't say it. There is no trick other than hard work, creativity, care, and recognizing that duty is more important than love the booming voice of Robert Maxwell, an arrogant man who used his publishing empire to gain him power and influence. But in this shocking account, never told before in this way, George Galloway recalls his first encounter with Maxwell. It looked like a a grizzly bear uh, advancing towards me and punches me with these giant fists. Like sides of ham, right in the solar plexus. So hard that I literally bent double. Then, after George exposed Maxwell as a crook in Parliament, it was war. Every one of his papers, the Daily Mirror, then following the Sunday Mirror, the Sunday People, the Daily Record, then a few days later, the Sunday Mail in Scotland. Even the European, which he then owned. All f- over Galloway. Scottish Daily News journalist Ron Mackay was there. Every night,
6: presumably, when he had a drink in him, he would boom over the tannoy about the 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 the, the, the cretins, the fools. The, the majority of the workforce believed that he would take it over and their jobs would be secure, but of course he didn't. He just disappeared.
7: And then
6: millionaire newspaper publisher robert maxwell is dead
4: what really happened did robert maxwell jump or was he pushed it could be that he went out to as he did miturate over the side of the boat i'm with glenn maxwell in that i leaned towards the murder this is maxwell the monster you said what is my secret i will let you and your viewers know
3: what it is i'm not attached to property consequently losing or gaining it means nothing to me
4: that was the maxwell promo you can see uh the whole of the video series uh, on my patreon i hope you'll go to it patreon.com forward slash george galloway i'm going to start a football podcast by the way on Patreon. Um, I think you'll like it. We'll cover the world of football. I've been watching football, if you think about it, for uh, longer than most people that are alive uh, since the age of six or seven years old. And uh, that's a long time ago. Uh, And uh, I have three sons, all of whom may very well make it as uh, professional footballers. I'm really... uh, something of an authority on the game, but I've actually found a younger fellow to do it with me who knows even more than me, especially about modern football, and can talk through the game. And we'll try and take calls and so on. It'll be fun. So uh, to be on it, of course, you have to join my patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. Uh, You can download the podcast version from wherever you get your podcasts uh, from. Uh, But we've now got the ambassador. Uh, The uh, interruption was merely temporary and I'm sure purely technical. He is Dmitry Polyansky, the deputy ambassador for Russia to the United Nations. Uh, Excellency, welcome uh, to the show. Sorry we're a little late in getting to you. I wonder uh, if we can start in what was breaking news at least an hour or so ago, Uh, may have been overtaken by events on the ground, but uh, one understood from the breaking news about an hour or two ago that uh, the government of France was seeking to broker a ceasefire uh, followed by a summit at the highest level uh, to save the peace in Europe. Are you able to tell us anything about that?
7: I think there was a, an official press release uh, about uh, this uh, meeting uh, on the website of uh, president of Russia. Uh, and uh, I know that there were speculations about something else and they were not confirmed by, from our side. But indeed, uh, France, as a member of uh, Normandy Group, bears uh, special responsibility for the behavior of our Ukrainian neighbors. So if uh, France has uh, certain tools influence them and uh, to convince them that they should uh, get in dialogue with their own citizens in the East, uh, that would be a very good scenario.
4: I'm sure you were too busy to listen to my opening remarks, but included in them uh, was uh, quoting the head of the Moscow Bureau, whatever or wherever that is, of the Carnegie Foundation that it's quite clear that these uh, wicked Russians are seeking to coerce the government of Ukraine, to implement the Minsk agreements. That's a very odd formulation, as one imagines that when one signs an agreement, uh, there is no further need for coercion uh, to implement it. And if there is, uh, the co-signatories to it are the ones who should be doing the coercing.
7: Uh, Absolutely, but I don't think it's even uh, okay to speak about any coercing. I think that uh, implementing this agreement uh, is in the best interest of Ukraine, if Ukraine wants to to remain a sovereign country and in control of uh, whatever happens on its territory. This was uh, behind the Minsk agreements, and uh, it is, uh, as I already said, uh, the backbone of this agreement is direct dialogue with the people in the east, because lack of this dialogue, uh, ignorance of what they wanted after the uh, illegal Maidan coup in 2014, was the core of all the problems uh, that Ukraine faced immediately after Maidan, uh, both with Crimea or with the east of Ukraine. Unless Ukraine uh, engages in the dialogue, meaningful dialogue, unless Ukraine uh, is ready to take everybody on board in one state, and uh, listen to their preoccupations uh, nothing good will happen for this country that's why the minsk agreements was uh, designed so i don't think anybody needs to coerce ukraine in doing so it's in the best interest of ukrainians themselves
4: well of course uh, dialogue and indeed recognition uh, of uh, of the autonomy uh, of the uh, so-called people's republics in the east of the country is what the minsk agreement was about but it also required uh, a ceasefire uh, on the borderline and and also the absence of foreign forces uh, from the area, neither of which is happening. Now, I've just, during the break for the news, looked uh, on social media. It appears that there is a major offensive now going on, uh, launched by uh, the uh, government forces against the people... Uh, of, uh, of, of the Donbass and of the uh, independent uh, areas. Can you confirm that?
7: Well, we receive a lot of uh, news, of course, about uh, ongoing shelling and uh, explosions on the territory of, uh, of the uh, control, controlled, uh, on the territory controlled by the republics. Uh, We also have uh, our own uh, sources of information. We have a lot of relatives and friends. They all say that the situation is uh, very dangerous and precarious and uh, that the evacuation of uh, peaceful population, uh, primarily women, children and elderly, is underway. A lot of them are leaving uh, these territories. As for the men, they are joining as volunteers uh, if they, of course, want to. the the military detachments, so people there are absolutely ready to defend their land and uh, to stop uh, Ukraine from destroying it.
4: So what do you think the end game uh, is? I've said from the beginning that Russia will not invade Ukraine, but Ukraine might very well invade uh, the uh, ethnically Russian population of the eastern part of their country. And if that happens, Russia will have no choice but to... Uh, try to protect and save those people. Uh, You're speaking for a state, I'm speaking only for myself, but the pressure on Russia to defend its its co-religionists, its compatriots, would be irresistible. It would be, uh, ineluctably, that would happen, no?
0: Ready to pop the question?
7: Let's not uh, engage in some kind of speculation, because I think uh, that uh, the, uh, the, the people there during the seven years of conflict, uh, they have enough of uh, resources uh, to withstand uh, Ukrainian attack on their own. Uh, again, uh, it's, it's only only hypothetical scenario, but uh, they have accumulated enough of, uh, enough of experience and uh, training combat, uh, combat uh, agility to do so. So um, uh, we'll see. But of course the scenario that I uh, described is very, uh, un- is very um, bad and we would like to avoid this scenario. We hope that uh, Ukraine will have enough common sense uh, to remain within the framework of Minsk agreements, uh, to, uh, to agree to ceasefire, of course. And also to implement uh, Minsk agreements, all the provisions you mentioned about autonomy, but it's not the autonomy; it's a special status of Donbas that should be implemented into Ukrainian uh, legislation as uh, as one of the major moves uh, for, uh, on the on the way to implement Minsk agreements. Uh, elections uh, need to take place, and there are a lot of provisions uh, in this document uh, which are. Um, which are happening one after another. And uh, the end result, if Ukraine does everything that it is uh, written there and the um, population of Donbass is uh, agreeing with this, would be re-establishment of Ukrainian control over the border. But Ukrainians usually try to start from this uh, last point, uh, to put it on top of everything, saying that we, they need to control the border first and foremost. So, so this is a very complicated situation and of course ukraine makes it uh, much more um, complicated complicated and uh, dangerous uh, for everybody and uh, given the fact that our western colleagues are trying to to put a blind eye to what's happening in the east uh, they are from the outset denying that ukraine is uh, shelling these territories uh, implying that everything that is happening there would be the result of uh, russian Provocation, of course, with such an emboldening, uh, it is uh, very risky, and it is very um, possible that uh, some some people in Ukraine uh, would have the temptation of uh, provoking uh, the uh, the rebels, uh, provoking these territories, and uh, we don't know what can be what may be the consequences uh, yet. So, if our French colleagues can influence uh, the. Uh, the minds of Ukrainian establishment and uh, to convince them that they should stick to Minsk agreements and that they should not open fire at uh, peaceful uh, populations in Donbas uh, that that uh, could be only welcome.
4: Now this is all a very big uh, tragedy for uh, for much of the life of the former Soviet Union. Uh, there were Ukrainians in the. Highest levels, including the highest level, not once but twice uh, in the leadership of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev and Brezhnev. Uh, And also, of course, the sacrifice made uh, by the heroes uh, in Ukraine as part of the Red Army, as part of the partisans behind the Nazi lines. Real heroism in the great patriotic war from Ukrainian uh, people. Of course, there was collaboration and there were Nazi sympathizers who quickly became Nazis as soon as they could. Uh, But the great majority of the Ukrainian people were a fraternal people uh, of the Russians. Uh, I feel extremely sad uh, about all of this. How how has it felt in Russia?
7: I think it's even more sad for us uh, to see what's happening, but the problem is that uh, there is very uh, loud and uh, powerful minority uh, in Ukraine that is now on the top of the country and that uh, dictates to the others the way that they should uh, deal with the history issues, uh, which is not shared by... Uh, majority of population in Ukraine, that's quite clear. We see it from opinion polls, we see it from our contacts, we still have a lot of friends and relatives there in Ukraine. And uh, they try to monopolize uh, the uh, public discourse of, uh, in Ukraine about these issues. Uh, you may have known that uh, six opposition uh, channels have been shut down and the key leader of the opposition is now uh, under arrest, Uh, so uh, apparently the repressions uh, are are very energetic now in Ukraine. So people are afraid, people are visibly afraid to speak out, to say things that they really uh, feel, uh, because this regime uh, that came uh, to power in 2014 has proved itself to be very bloody and uh, very, very uh, aggressive. Uh, It's enough to remember the tragedy in Odessa in 2014 when uh, Uh, 40 people were burnt alive only for trying to make their point clear. Uh, Actually, Donbass is the best uh, example of this. When people wanted to talk, uh, people in the East, not only in these uh, republics, but also in other Southeast cities, uh, wanted to discuss uh, how they would uh, live in one country with the people who came to power. But instead of uh, of speaking with them, these people came with arms and and, uh, planes and shellings and that's uh, that's happening uh, right now in, in, in other places. In some other places, people are maybe just waiting, intimidated. Uh, but uh, well, they can't be, uh, uh, of course, uh, happy about what's happening. Not only in history uh, terms, but also in uh, in use in the usage of Russian language, which is uh, which is a native language, mother tongue to a big majority of Ukrainian population. But as you know, it is banned, and people are being fined for. Uh, speaking Ukrainian, and uh, the law that is in force already now is gradually making these fines more and more important. So all this atmosphere, of course, creates a situation when uh, people in the in the in the West, uh, I mean in, the, in Western countries, they simply do not understand what's happening in Ukraine because they uh, try to to pick up information from uh, from those who are in power, from from the establishment, from those loud uh, minority. Uh, much of much of which has been formed and uh, financed by the West uh, in the previous years before Maidan. But they don't know what really the population feels and what, what it really wants uh, from, from all this situation. And this is, the population is, of course, sick and tired of, of war. Population is sick and tired of these authorities that are banning everything that is dear to them. So I, I think that you need to Take into consideration this picture uh, when you analyze the situation in Ukraine. And this picture is absolutely obscure for our Western colleagues. Uh, They have in mind uh, some kind of a um, more than democratic, progressive uh, country. They don't want to notice the corruption uh, there. They don't want to notice the oligarchs. They don't want to notice all the things that I just mentioned to you. And maybe they prefer to be comfortably numb in this situation, but that doesn't change uh, the uh, deepness of the problems uh, for our neighbours.
4: There's a few of them in the uh, bank details of uh, Credit Suisse, which has just broken here in England and repays uh, some study, Excellency. Now, the, the proximate reason for this crisis is Ukraine, but the Ukraine issue is located in the absolute failure to... Uh, respect the security needs of Russia vis-a-vis NATO uh, as a whole. And NATO is steadily recruiting and encroaching, getting ever closer, in fact, to Moscow. And uh, the Russian government has said there are red lines here Uh, and we have uh, security demands that must be... um, acknowledged and must be negotiated. Uh, So this is part of a bigger crisis. And that's why Britain and America and also some others are currently, right now, I mean, the German airspace is full of American planes. Right now, someone just told me, who's working in the uh, German uh, uh, ministry concerned. Um, This is all very alarming because that's not a local war uh, in, uh, in a part of Ukraine. Uh, that's a European war that is in danger uh, of breaking out, a European war which could involve uh, even the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, this is a deeply alarming prospect. Do you think any of the governments in Europe are alarmed or is it just the people?
7: well i think uh, they must be alarmed they must be mindful of what's happening but of course uh, they are having wrong perception of uh, what you are telling uh, they think that russia is trying to blackmail everybody and that uh, russia is trying to win some kind of of uh, points uh, because of the situation uh, but of course we would let's not uh, take uh, the hypothetical scenarios of, uh, of european war that's something that everybody wants to avoid and I don't see at this point uh, indications uh, that could lead to this war because we are all uh, people of common sense in Russia and in, in Europe and we all understand what is at stake here. But you're absolutely right that uh, this, uh, what, what's happening in Ukraine is an element of a much bigger picture. And our Western colleagues, sometimes they try to, to boil uh, the situation down to the narrow issue of Ukraine, uh, assuming that uh, once the situation around Ukraine is resolved, so then there will be no more problems in relations between, between Russia and the West. Ukraine is important, uh, the crisis in, in Ukraine is very important for Russia and for Europe, but the picture is much bigger, and uh, our, our colleagues, our neighbours in Europe, should take a bigger and more uh, in-depth uh, optics, uh, because indeed uh, the um, Russian security concerns that we were voicing from the very beginning It's not today that we started to voice them uh, are very legitimate Uh, they um, also take into account the promises the oral promises that were given to us during the um, period when uh, the when soviet union ceded to exist and uh, there are a lot of confirmation of this of these oral promises but uh, unfortunately they were not put on the paper Uh, It is also uh, important uh, to to, uh, understand that uh, we want uh, good uh, relations with our European colleagues, and uh, we were from the very beginning, I'm not speaking about NATO now, I'm speaking about European Union rather, Uh, we were speaking from the beginning of the years 2000 about some kind of uh, common spaces uh, that could uh, make uh, our cooperation with European Union, and at that time we called each other uh, strategic partners, Uh, there was such a time and I was working in Brussels at this time. So we were thinking about some concept that would allow us to cooperate, to create a big common space from Lisbon to Vladivostok and uh, to cooperate uh, to the benefit of all the participants uh, within the framework of this space. And so one of the preconditions uh, which we all shared, as we believed at this this stage, was that we uh, shouldn't put our Common neighbours in the position of a choice uh, between Russia and European Union, and of course Ukraine was first and foremost on, on our minds. So we kind of tried to promote this understanding. European Union was not against it uh, in principle, but it never materialized in anything concrete. The, the common space of external security contained this norm, uh, but uh, it was not implemented in practice because European Union started to launch the policy. The uh, first the uh, European neighborhood policy, which was more or less okay, but then uh, Eastern Partnership, which absolutely went to another direction and Eastern Partnership was exactly uh, designed to build uh, divisive walls and European continent and to put our neighbors in the position of choice between Russia and the EU. So I think that when we take this uh, we try to analyze the situation. We should uh, not uh, concentrate only on, na- on the NATO uh, policies. We should also think about EU policies. And this is something that should be changed in EU mentality uh, in, uh, in relations uh, with Russia and in approaches to our common neighbors.
4: Excellency, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Much obliged to you, brother. Now, news from the podcast this week. This is, I can't believe I'm reading this. We've got new subscribers in Martinique, Fiji, Cambodia, Mauritius and Georgia. That's not Georgia, USA, but Georgia in the Caucasus. And that means we now have subscribers in 130 countries. And we've been in the political top 10 in Russia, South Africa, Singapore and the Philippines. Not a bad week. Uh, And this actually is because... Our Maxwell the Monster podcast was released on all of our podcast platforms after last week's show. Uh, Part two of it is being released when I push the button at the end of this show. So please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to moats anytime, anywhere. And leave us, by the way, a five-star review if you would. Here's one. Uh, I listen in from Saudi Arabia and play your podcast on the commute to and from daycare. Not sure what my two-year-old gets out of it, but I certainly enjoy your perspective and the diversity of guests you have on. Thanks, Gigi. Thanks to you and to your two-year-old for putting up with it. Let's go to the uh, switchboard. Peter is in Canada, BC, British Columbia. Go ahead, Peter. Good morning, George. Or should I say good afternoon? Good uh, Good evening for us. You betcha. It's just noon here.
3: Anyways, I just caught you talking about uh, Ukraine there a while ago, and I was just wondering about, you know, how... uh, I want to tell you, in British Columbia here and across Canada, our prime minister has announced that anybody that supports the truckers are fascists, Nazis, and the worst. And meanwhile, at the same time, he just shipped off $500 million to the Ukraine, so they could support the government there, as well as a, a large a second shipment this month of weapons, apparently. You
4: know? I'm, applauding you. I'm applauding you, uh, Peter, uh, because it, that is such a screamingly obvious but ignored point. The truckers oh, well, of his own country are fascists while he's sending yeah. hundreds yeah. of millions to yeah. actual fascists. Yeah. Jack-booted, yeah. goose-stepping swastika flying ss insignia wearing you get it ukrainian fascists of the azov battalion as a matter of fact i have on good authority that it was the canadian armed forces that did most of the training of the azov battalion this is surreal it's absolutely surreal peter
3: we we brag about that here on our local CBC station that we're helping training and, and arm them against the uh, ruthless Russians, of course. And, uh, you know, so we, we hear the story here, that side of the story here, but we don't hear the other side until we look to Jimmy Dore, you, and many others, you know. Chris Hedges, for instance. You know, uh, these thought are liberal, people... Thought he was people- a
4: liberal, Peter. Thought this, thought this uh, Trudeau was a liberal. Or is he, in fact... A liberal. Well, he, maybe, maybe that's what liberals actually really are.
3: No, George, yeah, I think they... The man Jagmeet Singh, the man I voted for, the party that I voted for all my life. My grandfather was a CCFer. I met Tommy Douglas back in the day when I was just a child, as they chatted, and the CCF became the NDP, and I voted for them all my life. And for Jagmeet Singh to turn around, as well as Avi Lewis, the son of Stephen Lewis calling us all fascists, that we were, all those things that you just mentioned, is just shocking to many people here. And quite frankly, many people that have given money to this fund are living in great fear now, you know. Their bank accounts are being seized, their job, their life insurance policies are being cancelled, and uh, they're, they're, they're losing their jobs. So more people are going to be out of work soon. And uh, I guess that's the way it works, you know. I mean, uh, when we want to concentrate things into the right hands, I mean, the... The visions of. of, uh, There's a gentleman that that, that watches these events downtown in Ottawa quite. His name is Peter.
4: Peter, what what could actually be more explicitly fascist than forcing people to to take a medicine that they don't want to take? Yes. Seizing their bank accounts if they protest about it. Trampling them underfoot by the, the Mounties. Threatening to follow them home and hunt them down, even if they leave the protest. Slandering them as Nazis and fascists when all they're doing is expressing peacefully opposition to their government. What could be more fascist than that?
3: George? Fascism is ripe and alive and large here in Canada, but there's a large population of protests running across Canada right now, from Victoria all the way to Newfoundland. There are truckers going on. i even seen a taxi, uh, thing in Spain the other day where thousands of taxis were roaming through the streets honking their horns, you know? And I've heard of other such uh, freedom rides happening in other countries around the world, as like Australia, New Zealand, etc.
4: Peter, Peter, you've almost brought a tear to my eye. That's the call of the night. Thanks for that, Peter, in British Columbia, in Canada. Can we squeeze in Luke in the Whittle? Yeah, let's hear from Luke in the Whittle in England. Go ahead, Luke. Okay, George, good to speak to you again. Thank Um, you. Yeah, yeah,
8: fantastic. Um, What it is, we have witnessed, a you know, to take a leaf out of... uh, your, your hat. Uh, we have witnessed a natural metamorphosis from a butterfly back into a slug, yeah. and that would be and that would be the Labour Party turning into the Tory Party, and both sort of in, in, entwining within within one another. So now it's completely meaningless to anybody. Yeah, it's um, two
4: it's two slugs mating. Uh, if that's not too repugnant, uh, uh, an image. Uh, these two parties are one and the same now. Uh, You, you know, you've heard my old one about two cheeks of the same backside, uh, but they have, uh, they have congregated right in the centre of that backside.
8: It's unfortunate because there's a lot of people that we need a lot of things to get done. And there's you know all that they just seem to be arguing about masks and who got ripped off and who didn't get ripped off and you know and who got away with things and who didn't get away with things i mean we got we need to get things done in this in this this kingdom and uh, there's there's nobody hardly anybody apart from yourself and if, you know you're not even in government you know we need we need people to get things done here
4: yes uh to what do you attribute all of this how did the labor party go uh in such a short time, in such a dramatic uh, about-face, that they are now indistinguishable uh, from the Conservative Party, and both of them are, in fact, being run by Tony Blair.
8: I would say it happened. Yeah, Tony Blair obviously completely destroyed the Labour Party. But anyway, let's even go further back. You know, let's go back to Neil Kinnock. Let's go back. You know, you were around then, and... uh, you're older than me, but um, I tell you, I just remember the mining strikes, and I remember all the steel industry going down, the fishing industry, everything, the manufacturing industry, and now look where we are now. It's all been privatized. Thank you, Margaret Thatcher. Where are you now? You're gone. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. You're gone. You dereg- deregulated all the banks, all the financial industry. In London. Look where we are now, George. We're,
4: Yes, matched. it's a sorry uh, story, uh, indeed. Thanks uh, for making those points, Luke. Can I squeeze Lisa in Vancouver in now? OK, Lisa in Vancouver, in Canada, also in British Columbia. Go ahead, Lisa.
0: Hello, George. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I I just wanted to make a couple of points about the uh, Canadian Freedom Convoy and the narrative that the corporate media has been building. Yeah. Um, I... I used to consider myself uh, a left-wing progressive, and I usually vote for the Green Party or the NDP. But in this last election, I didn't vote for anyone because all of the political parties in Canada had a pro-mandate platform. So now I feel like a political atheist, and there is no party that represents me. Um, I do support the truckers, and I support an end to all the mandates. Um, But my issue is with the current narrative that the mainstream media has been um, putting out there that... The Freedom Convoy is all full of uh, Trump supporters and right-wing racists. And I reject that charactera- characterization for a number of reasons. Trump isn't Canadian, and he has no place in Canadian politics. It's not a right or a left thing or a Trump or an anti-Trump. But if you, if you wanted to go with that narrative, Trump was the administration that fast-tracked the vaccine. Trump was the one that bypassed the phase three trials for the emergency use authorization, and Trump was behind the lockdowns, the travel restrictions, and the mandates. So, if you're pro-vaccine and pro-mandates, then you must be pro-Trump because you support those policies. And the freedom protesters are anti—they're they're anti-Trump policies. So that that narrative just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, as far as the racism goes. Trudeau took a knee with Black Lives Matter, and Black Lives Matter has said that the mandates are racist because they negatively affect the minority and poor communities the hardest. And the the freedom protests are chock full of Chinese protesters because they left China to escape tyranny, and they don't want to see it creeping into the Canadian culture. So I reject that argument as well. And the other thing that people should know is that Canadians have been living under a tyranny for uh, a tyranny of silence for two years now, where you're not allowed to speak out. We have a radio host on Z95.3. It's one of our major uh, radio stations here in Vancouver. Um, His name is Kid Carson. And at the moment he spoke out that he was anti-mandate, he was immediately fired. You're not allowed to speak out against mandates here. And doctors can't treat patients as they see fit. There's a, a proclamation went out that if doctors gave people medical exemptions against the vaccine, then every single exemption would be thoroughly scrutinized. And if it was deemed to be inappropriate, there would be consequences.
4: Well, Lisa, so Lisa, Lisa can... I need to stop you up because I need to go to the news.
3: You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway.
4: One man who cares is my RT America colleague and the founder of the Centre for Political Innovation, a a brand new and extremely busy and extremely impressive political formation in America. They've got a very important conference coming up soon and I'm going to speak to it by uh, video Uh, because Caleb is not just any journalist. He's not just any broadcaster. He's a significant, though a young man, a significant political figure in America, and he's going to get much more significant yet. He joins me now, I hope, on the line. Caleb, thank you for joining us. Let's uh, start with Ukraine. We might not even get past Ukraine. Uh, Someone told me from Germany that the the, the German airports are full of uh, American uh, military aircraft. The the skies above Germany are filled with American aircraft. The British uh, airfields that you have have been sending uh, American warplanes out east uh, for the last week or 10 days. Are we really seriously going into a European war?
9: Well, it's starting to look that way, and that's utterly terrifying because I would like to just frankly ask, what is there to gain for average American working families right now who are seeing the price of food skyrocket, who are facing an epidemic of of opioids that are destroying the lives of their children, uh, that are driving on roads that are crumbling. What in the world is there for America's working families to gain in some confrontation in Ukraine? Now, Joe Biden is telling us he won't send American troops to fight in Ukraine, but that's deceptive because there are already American National Guard training uh, the Ukrainian military and that includes that Azov battalion that you know fascist formation that's part of the official Ukrainian military. What in the world uh, are the people of the United States going to gain from some kind of head-on confrontation with a great power like Russia, with a huge military? I mean, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, Meanwhile, you look at home, uh, the economy is crumbling, inflation is through the roof, Americans are upset, they're angry, Uh, and Joe Biden wants to get us into a new war with Russia? This is insane.
4: It is, It it qualifies as insane, especially as you lost the last war, not six months ago, uh, at the hands of men on bicycles. Uh, What makes the American ruling elite think that they can fight the hypersonically nuclear superpower of Russia?
9: Sure, and... Also, let's look at the facts. You know, right now, Afghanistan, that had 20 years of U.S. occupation that devastated the country, let the drug gangs and the terrorist groups get stronger. uh, Now, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan and it froze all of their funds. And right now, there is a crisis of malnutrition taking place in Afghanistan. So, while there are people starving, uh, the US government has stolen all the funds of the Afghan government, uh, frozen them, and now they're, they're distributing it to the 9-11 families, even though the Afghan people had nothing to do with 9-11. The USA is committing a horrendous human rights violation, a horrendous atrocity, uh, using hunger as a weapon of war. Uh, and to distract us, uh, they want to focus on, oh, you know, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Be very afraid of, of Russia. Meanwhile, if you look at the details and if you look at U.S. media and how they're reporting on this, they are not in touch with reality. Uh, you know, the civilian uh, areas of eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, Donetsk, uh, Luhansk, uh, they have been shelled uh, by the Ukrainian government. A number of civilians have been killed. Thousands of civilians have been killed since this conflict began in 2014 with Barack Obama overthrowing the Ukrainian government with Euromaidan a lot of civilians, but yet now that civilians are being evacuated from Eastern Ukraine in the aftermath of the explosions that happened on Friday, Uh, The U.S. media is making it sound like it's a crazy allegation that the Ukrainian government would never do this. They have been doing it. They have killed civilians. They have a monument specifically to the children who have been killed since this conflict began. The peoples of Donbass, Donetsk, Luhansk, Odessa, they have suffered since this conflict has began. They have been persecuted. They have been hit with drones. There are Turkish drones that, that the Kiev government has purchased from Erdogan that they've been using and attacking eastern Ukraine, and the people in eastern Ukraine are worried about their own safety and they're fleeing and they're evacuating. And U.S. media makes it sound like there's nothing for them to be afraid of. They're not paying attention to what's actually happened in Ukraine since 2014. They're just kind of glossing all of this over, making it sound like like Russia is somehow the one we should all be afraid of.
4: Well, uh, some of the most eminent uh, journalistic figures uh, in this country are saying exactly the same thing. Now, given that I know that they are not fools, Uh, That means that they are knaves, that they are lying. Uh, They absolutely know uh, that thousands of civilians have been killed in that very place uh, between uh, 2014 and now. They also know uh, that the uh, massed battalions, including the fascist Azov battalion, are right now on the line of control and are right now firing shells uh, from canon and mortar. They know that because they're not fools and they only have to go on social media. They can see it with their own eyes, but they are denying it, which makes them liars, uh, from my point of view rather than fools. I'm not sure which actually would be worse, uh, in our, uh, fellow journalists. But, uh, It's beginning, I mean, I agree with the word you used right at the beginning. It's beginning to look rather like there's going to be a war.
9: Yes, and it's terrifying. I think people don't seem to understand what this means. You know, during the Cold War, uh, there was understanding that if the USA and the Soviet Union faced off, Uh, that might end the human race. And when things started to look like they were moving toward war, uh, you would have voices on the media, the mainstream networks in the United States, who would get on there and say, oh, let's slow this down here. This is dangerous. Uh, This could end the world. Uh, You know, there was there was an understanding that that a standoff with the United States and the Soviet Union was not good. But if you turn on mainstream networks in the United States, you don't hear that. Um, you hear almost the mainstream networks are egging Biden on. They want him to attack Ukraine. He's not doing enough. They want him to get into a confrontation with Russia. They they are kind of demanding that he be hostile and warlike against a, a very powerful country called Russia with a very strong military. Um, it, it, it's very bizarre. There's such a gap between how average working class Americans feel in their bones and what they are seeing on the TV networks. Uh, You know, the voices of the mainstream, uh, they don't represent what average Americans feel. Look at all the support here in the United States for that trucker convoy in Canada. All this support is pouring in. So many working class Americans are with those truckers, against the mandates, against the big corporations. Uh, They're with them. But mainstream media in the United States is almost completely unified in opposition uh, to, to the truckers. And that shows you there's a gap. There is a very, very big gap Average Americans know in their bones that the government is working for somebody other than them. This is supposed to be a democracy, but it seems like a lot of big corporations, a lot of banks, a lot of military contractors, a lot of natural gas and oil companies, they have the influence and they seem to have forgotten about average Americans. Average working class Americans don't seem to be a priority. Their lives are getting worse. They are not interested in new wars, uh, but yet uh, our government is moving in a very, very different direction.
4: Isn't your government supposed to be, uh, I know these terms are relative and perhaps more fluid than they have ever been, but it wasn't the choice between Donald Trump the, the right-wing candidate and Joe Biden the left-wing candidate? Aren't the Democrats supposed to be the left? Aren't these great media houses uh, traditionally thought to be liberal And yet they're the people that may very well be dragging us into war.
9: Well, sure. I mean, we've seen kind of a flip in the U.S. uh, political spectrum. It seems like now the voices that are more skeptical of the establishment are coming from the right, whereas liberalism, uh, you know, and the Democratic Party uh, have just kind of become the enforcers of the status quo. Um, And that is a very interesting development we've seen. It used to be the Democrats were the ones that wanted to negotiate, that were less hawkish. uh, but. Things have really kind of shifted, and and it's on the right that we're seeing some criticism of Joe Biden and his escalation with Russia. Now the right seems to be more focused on hostility toward China, so it's almost a matter of taste. But you know, on the right, you get more people that are are criticizing this, whereas a lot of the liberals just line up behind Joe Biden. However, I will say that among the Bernie Sanders camp, there are a lot of folks in the Bernie Sanders camp who really did believe what what Bernie Sanders said um, and really, really do believe in you know, in peace and jobs and democracy and equality. And a lot of them are speaking up against their own party um, and they've gotten ostracized for doing so. US politics is in a very, very odd situation right now. I mean, Joe Biden came in and he was supposed to rescue the country from the disaster of Donald Trump. All the nightmare of the pandemic and you know, instability and rioting and Joe Biden was supposed to bring the country back together. He's done the opposite. Polls show that the country is more polarized than when Donald Trump was in office. There are deeper divisions among the public than there were before. The economy is doing worse. Uh, COVID deaths have increased. Uh, Joe Biden has really failed to live up to the American people's expectations in so many ways. And then that raises the question, are we expecting a sweep by Republicans in the midterms coming up? Should we expect Donald Trump to get reelected? Uh, You know, will he be like Grover Cleveland and serve non-consecutive terms, right? Uh, You know, get voted out of office and then get voted back in. Uh, We'll have to see because the Joe Biden, you know, moment of of clarity, he was going to save the whole country. We were going to get out of the nightmare of Donald Trump. It hasn't materialized, I'll tell you that much.
4: I find it difficult to believe he's running your great country. This great country, this uh, industrial powerhouse, this can-do country, the richest, most powerful country in the world, uh, with all its technological and cultural uh, achievements. I look at Joe Biden now. I wouldn't wouldn't send him out for a loaf, Caleb. I, I wouldn't let him play with his coat button, never mind a nuclear button. I'm finding it hard to believe he's in charge of events.
9: Sure. Well, the fact that he doesn't know what Let's Go Brandon means, right, that's the meme that's caught on in the United States by his detractors, that he's demonstrated, he has no idea what that even means. He's the president of the United States. There's people who don't like him, and they've rallied around this joking meme, Let's Go Brandon. He's never heard it. He doesn't even know what it means. That shows you he is not, not really in touch with things. He lives in a presidential bubble. And there are people in that bubble feeding him information and telling him what they want to hear and directing his every move. And every so often it gets almost embarrassing. He'll say something like, well, now they want me to go here or now they want me to go there. Oh, they're telling me to go. I mean, it's almost like he's making it obvious that, that he's a puppet of somebody else. Um, it's a little bit disturbing and scary. And the craziest thing is that, you know, his vice president, Kamala Harris, she's even less popular than he is uh you know i mean people don't like joe biden his poll numbers are low but kamala harris scares even some of biden's supporters you know they, they talked about how uh, the the white house just couldn't stand the staffers of the vice president and that people are quitting kamala harris's staff in droves because they don't want to be known as harris people and that she has a very bad reputation on capitol hill polls show that kamala harris is even less popular than joe biden is so It's a bizarre situation with everything that went wrong in the Trump years and and all that that. You'd think that the Democratic Party would take this moment to shine and walk through and and become popular and fix the country. Uh, They seem to have made things worse and worse and worse. Uh, They don't know what they stand for. They're trying to please about five or six or seven or eight big different factions among our elite. Uh, they don't even know quite what they're doing. Uh, meanwhile, the situation in the country is getting worse. And this international situation is also getting very, very scary and dangerous. I mean, this this idea of a war with Russia, this is not this is not a war you can fight with drones. I mean, this is not uh, this is not you know, this is not something that, that you know, you, you sit down and talk about it over coffee. I mean, this is a serious situation and you'd think mainstream media would be at least alerting people and trying to prep them for how serious this is going to be. They're not doing that. Mainstream media seems to think, oh great, war with Russia. Let's escalate with Russia. Tension, that's great. I mean I I mean I'm I'm shocked. I'm utterly shocked at seeing how ridiculously pro war mainstream media is.
4: Mm. Same here. I told you it was good, didn't I? Caleb Mopan, thanks very much for joining us on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Let me take some calls, can I? Cornelius in Swansea. He's a an interesting fella. Go ahead, Cornelius.
2: Uh, uh, evening, George. Evening. Um, I o- I always look forward to the beginning of your show, right? Because your first ten minutes, right, is so explosive, right? It's absolutely class. I Thank really, you. really, really love it. Um, you had uh, an independent me- American female journalist on earlier. Kim, oh, Kim Iverson. Did- yeah.
4: Did you Iverson, like her? Yeah.
2: Yeah, but I, I got lost a little bit when she started bringing in Donald Trump in relation to what the vaccine situation is in Canada. What's it to do with
4: Donald Trump? Uh, I think she was making the point that, if it was her that was making it, may have been a caller earlier, uh, the, the, the point is that the truckers are being accused of being a front for Donald Trump, of having been financed by the Trump movement. That's what she was saying.
2: Yeah, but um I listened to for instance when Trump was uh was doing his rallies for the for to get reinstated as the president, which he lost. And he always advocated that um that the ones that I listened to that he was for the vaccine, but he said it's up well, to few whether to take I, it or not.
4: I'm for the vaccine. I'm triple vaccinated. I'm yeah, against I'm against forcing people to take medicine. It cries he- out against everything i have always believed in and i cannot believe the people i used to politically travel with now think that's okay now think it's all right to forcibly inject someone with with medicine when did this begin when did this begin I 100%
2: agree with you. But the, the point, one little point I'd like to make, if you don't mind, is that when the media in the UK started talking about the Omicron virus and they interviewed specialists from South Africa and they said, it, well, yes, it was contagious, but it was a minor illness, right? The government can only respond to the, what they call the R-rate is within the community. And if the infection is supposed to be a mild infection... Why was there so many people running to get a test done over a cough or a runny nose? Is our country become a, full of hypochondriacs? Not the hypochondriacs, but, but
4: yeah, there was a big uh, sense of fear in the country and it was deliberately engendered. You heard it here this, on this very show. I said that Omicron was the variant that we've been waiting for. The Omicron would herald the end of the pandemic. And therefore, yeah, far from being uh, a reason for locking down still further, it was going to lead to the end of the whole thing. And I was right in what I said. Yeah. And I based it on the South African experience. Now, Correct. if I could right. do that, and I didn't even go to university, Cornelius, never mind... Am I not a doctor? If I, if I could work that out, how come the educated idiots that rule us and write our newspapers and, and, and work our TV, how come they didn't know that?
2: Yes, I agree with everything you're saying, uh, uh, George, right? But I listen so often, obviously, since this pandemic started, and everybody in the UK obviously have listened to the debates and it's gone on for so long. But since the Omicron came out, the government can only respond to the, the infection rate within the community, and they only know what the infection rate in the community is, is by the R rate, by the amount of people getting tested. Yeah, but that's but all coming a, to it's an done end now.
4: That's all yeah, coming yeah, to an end, Cornelius.
2: Yeah, but but the public are the ones that are rushing to get a test over a minor illness.
4: Well, look, it's uh, the
2: public that's creating the issues.
4: Well. It's a it's a dialectic, isn't it? The, the state and its media generate the hype and the public, uh, most of them, uh, respond. But we can't go on spending £2 billion a week testing. Uh, Labour thinks we should. Uh, Boris Johnson says we won't. And he's going to announce talking? tomorrow, more or less, the end of the emergency.
2: Right, and is that a good thing in relation... It's to a good thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's not often, I, not often I
4: can say about Boris Johnson, but he's doing the right thing on this. Cornelius, I need to go on. My final guest for the evening uh, is a very old friend of mine. Um, we've travelled to many hot spots together, uh, war zones, in fact. Uh, he has been uh, everything, he's been amazing, a Labour. National Executive Committee member, a Labour parliamentary candidate, the editor of the Socialist Newspaper Tribune, but he also ended up as the speechwriter to the Secretary-General of the United Nations. His name, of course, is Mark Seddon, and he joins us now. Mark, thanks uh, very much for doing so. We've been to a few war zones, but... There might not be any chance to go to the war zone in the Ukraine. It might just be volcanic ash.
6: Well, he's hoping not. Quite obviously, nobody wants a war. Nobody wants a war. And I think, you know, the efforts that President Macron, one of the, the European leaders who has been acting in a more serious way in comparison to our own here, is obviously uh, making some... Uh, some major efforts to try and get these serious discussions underway again. I mean, I was interested to see today that, that reality has also dawned on the uh, president of Ukraine, that the diplomatic way is the best way. Uh, and I have to say that, you know, the reality is we know that uh, when the Berlin Wall fell, the promise was made not an inch eastwards, and that was NATO expansion. Uh, and that promise was made by Chancellor Cole, by Herr Genscher, uh, by uh, Secretary of State Baker. Many of, I'm sure you discussed it this evening. This is key to the whole issue Ukraine, as do sensible people throughout the world know that this crisis could end if essentially uh, Ukraine says, we, we don't want to join NATO. And lots of people say, oh, but it's their absolute right to join NATO. Well, it's also our right elsewhere in the world to say, uh, look, let's be realistic. (laughs) The United States would never tolerate missiles on Cuba. It didn't. Uh, It would never tolerate um, Mexico with Russian troops on it. No, so Russia is not going to tolerate NATO expansion into Ukraine. And it's just, it seems quite extraordinary that, uh, I don't know that there's almost, the lack of seriousness that we see, in, especially in sections of the media in the West, uh, almost almost willing something on. And, of course, the, the, some of the dangerous brinkmanship um, being played by uh, President Putin, too. Uh, that Everybody's got to ste- step back from this. It would be absolutely crazy. You know, George, Ukraine, sadly, tragically, is often referred to as the Eastern Bloodlands for good reason. This is a highly complex part of the world. Uh, And it's an area of the world that really, yet more conflict, because people forget conflict has been going on for over eight years. And yet there we have, in this Minsk agreement, the basics everybody knows for a permanent peace. Uh, But it's also got to be a peace that recognizes that, you know, Ukrainians want to go into different directions, maybe, you know, as they may well do in this country too. So you know, we just got to hope that. Um...
4: Well, you say, Mark, that nobody wants war, but I think Boris Johnson wants war, and Keir Starmer is bolted up to his backside. So there's two people that want war. Well, um, when I, Boris so, when Johnson when I say people, and Keir Starmer want war.
6: It's you know, I'm talking about the people, the peoples of the world who who matter. Um, they don't want, they do not want war. Uh, you know, they and and when and, and you see the other thing is, it's absolutely clear. International law does mean that you do not invade other countries. Now, of course, no invasion has happened of Ukraine yet, but you know, parts of uh, Israel has been an occupation of parts of Palestine for over 50 years, uh, and, and nobody's making a fuss about that. So look, the thing is, most people do not want war. I'm sure that the Prime Minister, I think Boris Johnson is deeply out of his depth on this, for what it's worth. I also think Keir Starmer is as well. I think they're blundering about. They're extras. They're not. They're not taken seriously. And frankly, you know, when a British prime minister can dispatch a foreign secretary who appeared to be more interested in having pictures taken of her parading around in a fur hat in quite in quite warm weather in Moscow and didn't even know that Rostov is in Russia and not Ukraine, you really have to wonder about these people. But it's 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 kind of. Um, Look, there's not, I don't think there's going to be, uh, my own view is I don't think that realistically there's going to be any NATO involvement in Ukraine. There can't be. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. There's going to be an awful lot of, um, there's been a great deal of bluster, frankly, f- from the prime minister who's, who's not taking this as seriously as other European leaders are. Uh, uh, does he want a war? sure he probably doesn't want a war, but he certainly would rather have this and these sorts of issues being talked about than his own uh, behavior.
4: Yes, talking of behavior, we've only got time to deal with, uh, with one. Uh, you know New York very well. You worked there at the United Nations for several years. You taught there in the university. Uh, what do you make of the Prince Andrew situation where he's paid 12 million quid to a woman he says he's never met?
6: Yeah, well, that seems it does seem very, very strange, that. I mean, there's this uh, it, an extraordinary situation in this country right now whereby you have not only the government uh, and the police, the Metropolitan Police and the royal family uh, facing a whole wave of separate scandals. It's not just P- Prince Andrew who's currently uh, under the spotlight, but also Prince Charles too. Now, maybe not so directly of course, in his case, with this uh, cash-for-honours investigation that's taking place. But with the issue of Prince Andrew, a truly extraordinary situation, which has been allowed to fester for a very long time, as we all know. I mean, we also remember Prince Andrew as uh, Randy Andy, as the uh, international jet-setter, as the Air Miles Andy. Essentially, a, a lack of accountability over uh, the uh, some members of the royal family. It's serious, because... Obviously, the Queen is the head of state of Britain. She's also head of state of 15 other Commonwealth countries to boot. It's not just about Britain. Uh, now, of course, you know, she's not under the spotlight, but, you know, she does appear to have been rather trusting of what her her son has been saying to her these years. So there's a, there's a, there's poor judgement there too, possibly.
4: Mark Ziddon, always a pleasure. Thanks very, very much for joining us. I apologise about the loss of transmission... Uh, which seems to have affected our Facebook, uh, which actually finished uh, prematurely. I hope uh, this is not the beginning of something bad, but remember this. Follow me on Telegram. On my Telegram channel, you will always be able to find me. Whatever anybody does... If anybody tries to close us down or deplatform us, we will always be on Telegram. It's t.me forward slash George Galloway. Please do that uh, tonight. Now, Maxwell the Monster is now available on Patreon in full. But tonight, I'm pressing the button on episode two of the podcast. Can now listen to the first two podcasts on Spotify, Apple Music, and Deezer, or from wherever you get your podcasts from. So uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, YouTube is back, Twitter is back, but the Facebook stream has ended, and we're investigating why. But if we get taken off, don't forget the Telegram channel. Let me launch. The podcast now. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. If it was, come back next week.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.